This is the Mahabharata Podcast, episode 100, summing up. So, this is it. We've covered the unabridged Mahabharata from end to end. I even threw in most of the 10th book of the Bhagavata Purana, or the Srimad Bhagavatam, which had the backstory of Krishna's birth and childhood. Aside from the flowery language, I tried to leave nothing of significance out. What I considered significant was any detail directly pertaining to the characters or storyline, plus anything interesting or remarkable, plus every story that I could make sense of or convey to you. I always tried to err on the side of being too boring rather than risk leaving something important out. In fact, there's only one detail that I later reconsidered. I must confess that I never got the chance to fit it in. At the risk of being boring, I'll tell you what it is. When the Pandavas were younger, before the war, and they greeted their elders, such as Bhishma, it would say that Bhishma would smell their heads. It seems to be something parents do out of affection for their children, but I've never heard of it. Maybe this is still commonplace in India. I don't know. As for the major things I left out, it would be a lot of the legalistic gibberish from the final teachings, and especially the telling of the Ramayana by Hanuman. Having skipped over that part of the Arnyaka Parva, it has begun to gnaw at me that maybe I should go back and cover it as a supplement to this podcast. But then I think I might as well go all the way and do the Valmiki Ramayana. But then I think I ought to read both versions concurrently, and that's a serious undertaking not to be taken lightly. So I'll keep thinking about it, and I'll definitely crack open that tome and see where it leads me. Looking back over the story, there are a few points in the plot where the author is surprisingly parsimonious with the details. I think the first part that really bothered me was the way it describes, or fails to describe, the exact transfer of power between the brothers Pandu and Dhritarashtra. The problem goes back to the original decision to bypass the eldest son Dhritarashtra because of his blindness. It only says that he was not given the crown due to his blindness. This statement is made in a completely passive sense. Who made this decision? Was it Bhishma or Satyavati? Or was it just so obvious that there was no need to discuss it? This becomes problematic later when Pandu goes into retirement in the forest. The ambiguities pile up because at some point it seems that blind Dhritarashtra begins to act like the king and then eventually he is actually the king. If Dhritarashtra had been formally barred from the throne, then why did they change their mind later and make an exception? And when exactly did this happen? Pandu's exit appears to have happened in stages. First, he was away making war, and then he took up hunting, which gradually turned into a kind of retirement. The final stage in his withdrawal was when he was cursed by the ascetic. It says that Dhritarashtra handled matters of state while Pandu was away, but when exactly did he take on the crown? For a story that can oftentimes be obsessive to cover every detail, this lateral transfer of power remains a mystery. Is it possible that our author was himself unclear on what exactly happened? Only one theory presents itself. Given that all we can know about this text is what the text itself tells us, our only choice is to take it at its word. We can only speculate on the gaps in the story. Perhaps primogeniture was not so fixed in the Kuru dynasty, and the crown could go to a brother before it goes to the king's heirs. The thing is that such speculation is empty. It might help us to feel like there are no gaps in the story, but it can never be definitively proven. So let me present an explanation that might be justified by what is in the text. We are told that this story was written by Krishna Dvaipayana Vedavyasa, who also fathered the protagonists of the story. I'm sure that even the most pious Hindu living today has at least considered that perhaps the Mahabharata wasn't really written by that Vyasa. And I'm equally sure that most educated readers of the epic pretty much assume that it was not written by Vyasa. Probably most people figure it was either written by a guy named Vyasa, 
who got confabulated with the character in the story, or it was written by someone else altogether and falsely ascribed to Vyasa. But again, this is empty speculation. In the absence of any evidence to the contrary, we can only take the text at its word, that it was indeed written by one of the characters in the story. Taking that as a given, then let's go back to the question at hand, which is, why is the story so vague on the details of how Dhritarashtra became king instead of Pandu's eldest son? All I can observe is that Vyasa was not around at that time in the story. If that Vyasa really wrote this story, it doesn't seem that he was hanging around with the Kurus at that time. We know that from the day of his birth, Vyasa headed straight for the forest, where he remained as a dedicated ascetic all his life. He came to court briefly to sire the sons of Ambika and Ambalika, Pandu, Dhritarashtra, and Vidur, but then immediately left for the forest again when his work was done. To the best of my recollection, Vyasa does not appear again until the wedding of the Pandavas. More on that later. So, assuming Vyasa is indeed our source for these events, maybe he was far off in the woods when this took place, and was himself unclear on what had gone on at court. As an ascetic, I doubt he had much interest in subjects like dynastic inheritance or primogeniture. So maybe he wasn't really sure how the crown ended up on Dhritarashtra's head, and had never bothered to ask, so he left it sort of vague in his retelling. The next problem in the text is the wedding of Draupadi to the Pandavas. I've talked about this before in episode 76, when I was trying to sort out the soul nature of each of the brothers. Up to that point, we knew that they were the sons of Dharma, Vayu, Indra, etc., and that Vyasa explained that each possessed the soul of Indra. That was called the tale of the five Indras. I had thought that maybe we could accommodate both of these facts, but now, having finished the book, it appears to be a flat-out contradiction. Without grasping for some esoteric explanation that both can be true, the brothers are either their father's incarnate or their Indra incarnate. To add to the mystery, Arjun is also said to be Nara incarnate, eternal twin and companion to Narayan, who is Krishna. The ending of the story, as the brothers return to heaven, seems to endorse the theory that they share their father's souls and are not at all Indra. Really, I do not know what to make of it. The story often gets ambiguous at some of the most crucial moments of the plot. This is especially true in the case of the dice game. There's no question that the dice game is the catalyst that makes a whole story move forward. There would be no story if it were not for the dice game. So why are some of the details so vague? Why do the characters act so strangely? And why is there so much ambiguity regarding Yudhishthira's motivation? First of all, according to one of our translators, Van Butenen, the oldest sources that describe the Rajasuya sacrifice include a dice match as part of the ritual. But of course, in our story, the dice game is completely separate from the Rajasuya. The Pandavas Rajasuya made the Karvas jealous, and they hosted the dice game in retaliation. It is understandable that Yudhishthira felt compelled to attend, since he had been invited by his uncle. But there's no explanation for why he decided to gamble away the freedom of his wife and brothers. I've talked about Yudhishthira's gambling habits before, that there's no mention elsewhere that he ever enjoyed gambling of any sort, let alone dice, and he's never accused of being a gambler, only for having staked inappropriate bets. So there remains unanswered the question of Yudhishthira's motivation for his outrageous behavior. Also strange is the amazing winning streak on the part of the Karavas. It is not at all clear what the rules of that game were, but it's hard to believe that they could win so many rounds in a row. It is so easy for us to assume that Shakuni was cheating somehow, but you know what? No one in the text ever makes that accusation. So why not? It is clear from his behavior that Shakuni is an odious fellow, 
so why not say that he used weighted dice or some kind of magic? I've been watching for it, but somehow no one ever accuses him of having rigged the game. The odd behavior extends in all directions. Yudhishthira seems to be in a kind of trance as he gambles away all his possessions. Even though he loses every single throw of the dice, he never questions the fairness of the game itself. I've noticed that most people simply explain that Yudhishthira had a gambling addiction, but that makes little sense if you look at it. First, as I've said before, no one in the text ever accuses him of that. But more importantly, that would be completely out of character for him. Gamblers are enslaved to attachments and desire. They are unwilling to let go of the things they have lost, and they have uncontrollable desire for what they stand to win at the next throw. But Yudhishthira has never shown any sort of avarice or attachment in the past. In fact, his readiness to stake his own family after the impossibility having lost dozens of rolls of the dice in a row strongly indicates that he was a man of very few attachments. If we can attribute any sort of motivation to our hero, it must be the opposite of greed. We can only surmise that he was deliberately trying to shed his possessions and attachments, perhaps out of a desire to give up his crown and retire to the forest. But even that explanation doesn't work very well, because gambling away the freedom of his wife and brothers is hardly a good way to resign. So that doesn't make sense either. The only other motivation that might make sense is that perhaps Yudhishthira was trying to shame his uncles by throwing himself completely at the mercy of his cousins. But that seems awfully reckless and irresponsible to his immediate family. The strange behavior extends outward to the other characters as well. This is especially true for Bhishma. His whole existence was dedicated to protecting the dynasty and the heirs of Shantanu, his father. But here, at the moment his dynasty began to self-destruct, he seemed incapable of taking action. He just sat there dumbly and let the outrages continue. Even Draupadi behaves inexplicably. Throughout the scene of her torments, she continues to make strangely legalistic arguments, such as asking whether her husband was free when he staked his wife. It's difficult to even guess what she was working at. It seems she would have been better off appealing to their own sense of dignity and reputation rather than seeming to scold her husband. But let's not be too hard on poor Draupadi. The problem is that everyone seems to behave as if they were in a trance until Vidor somehow snaps out of it and gets Dhritarashtra to revoke the worst of the outrages. Only Dhritarashtra tries to explain it by lamely blaming fate for the whole thing. So here we are once again at a most crucial turning point in the story, and the narrative becomes surprisingly ambiguous. Everyone acts strangely out of character. So let's again apply our hypothesis. Where was the author when all this was going on? He definitely was not at the gambling hall with the royal family. Vyasa was off in the woods at the time, presumably at his ashram. What if the dice game really was an extension of the Rajasuya ritual, but it was the part that was done in private, behind the palace walls? Again, we can imagine that Vyasa was not very interested in the internal wrangling over crowns and lands that took place in the royal palace. Perhaps he didn't quite know what had taken place during those two dice matches. I admit that this is no more provable than any other speculation, but at least it is aligned with the facts in the story itself. The Rajasuya sacrifice, as described in the epic, was clearly a very public ceremony, with kings from all over India in attendance. The dice game, on the other hand, was a family affair, with only the crews and their closest retainers present. So maybe no one really knew what went on behind the palace gates. Just that there had been a falling out among the cousins, involving the honor of the Pandava's wife. Not even Krishna was there to witness it. Judging by Vyasa's character, I do not think he was the type to be interested in court gossip. So again, he may very well have been a bit ill-informed as to what exactly took place. 
the ending of the epic is also surprisingly opaque. The death of Bhishma goes on and on with his final teachings, but once the old guy is passed on, the narration starts moving at a breakneck pace. While some of the early books in the Mahabharata exceed 500 pages, the last four books are shrunk down to the size of pamphlets. The quiet rivalry between Bhima and his uncle Dhritarashtra sounds fascinating and could easily have been filled with incidents and details, but it is passed over with barely a mention. Poor Uncle Vidor barely gets a speaking part once the war is ended. And then it is all about him reacting to his nephew's desire for retirement or his brother's sorrow. It would have been nice to hear from him before he completely lost his identity. And of course, there is the death of the Yadavas, Krishna, and Balram. This was a fascinating incident involving some of the most important protagonists, and yet we are given only a bare-bones sketch of what took place. And why exactly did Dwarka sink beneath the waves? We can only speculate because Krishna only announced it was going to happen, but he never gave any reason why. It is possible that my same theory applies to these incidents as well. Maybe Vyasa didn't really know what happened because he wasn't there. Or maybe by then Vyasa was dead. The thing that makes me wonder if Vyasa actually died before the snake sacrifice is that while we are told he attended the recital, he never spoke a word. The last time we got a direct quote from Vyasa was when Arjun visited his ashram after his defeat and loss of the Yadava women. So I guess we have to assume he was alive at that point, but we never hear from him again. He must have been getting on in years by the time of Krishna's death, so maybe he was a bit out of touch. Perhaps he had already composed most of the epic by that time. It says he spent three years working on it, we are not told when he did it. As for Vyasa's attendance at the snake sacrifice, it may be explainable in another way. Have you ever heard of channeling? Personally, I had never heard of it in the Indian context, but in the West, there's a tradition, going back at least a century, of spirit mediumship, where a medium enters a trance and begins to speak on behalf of a disembodied intelligence. What made me think of spirit channeling in terms of the epic is the strange episode when Vidur and Dhritarashtra stay up all night talking. Late into the morning, Vidur mentions a wise sage named Sanat Kumar. When his brother asks to hear more wisdom from this fellow, suddenly Sanat Kumar is there with them, and he delivers a wise sermon to the blind king. Like a ventriloquist, Vidur never speaks when Sanat Kumar is speaking. Even more fascinating is that Sanat Kumar is still channeled today in the West. You can find writings on the internet attributed to this sage by New Age mediums. When I made that connection, I went off and read a lot of channeled literature, from conversations with God to the Seth material, and that got me thinking, what if the Mahabharata is channeled material? What if, at the snake sacrifice, Vyasa was already long dead, and it was up to his disciple Vaishampayana to channel his dead master's words? I must say that having read a lot of channeled material, the Mahabharata could easily fit into that category of literature, with its surprising exactitude at times, and equally opaque at others. What if this is a story that somehow leaked over from another dimension? Elements of the plot are so strange that it sometimes feels that way. And its origins are such a mystery that we can't rule anything out. But, getting back to the mysterious gaps in the story, the very biggest gap is the whole backstory of Krishna. Why do we get treated to an extended version of Shakuntala and the whole life of both Ramas, but barely a word is spoken about Krishna's background or biography prior to his meeting with the Pandavas at Draupadi Swayamvara? There is, of course, a line of thought that Krishna was not originally a very significant character. He was a young princeling from a semi-barbaric tribe of Yadavas, and he attached his fortunes to his wealthier, more nobly born cousins. 
The Pandavas, in turn, valued Krishna for his advice and loyalty. This theory holds that all the Krishna equals God stuff was added later as the Bhakti movement was developed in the Middle Ages. To me, the strongest argument in favor of this theory is the missing biographical material on Krishna. If Krishna were the God-man protagonist of the epic, why would they have left out the miraculous stories of his birth and childhood? I think this is a big problem, and the ancients must have felt the same way, because someone tried to compensate for this lack by writing an appendix to the epic called the Harivamsa, or the genealogy of Hari. Stylistically, it is obvious that the Harivamsa was written later, as were all of the Puranas. Thus, all the information we have of Krishna's birth and childhood come from sources that may have been written up to a thousand years after the Mahabharata was composed. On the other hand, the genius of the epic is that these lacunae and ambiguities only increase our fascination with the story. It makes the story flexible. We can fill in the blanks with whatever we want to see there, and so we can all love this epic while bitterly disagreeing as to what really took place. It is really quite amazing. Having brought up the subject of bhakti, I should also comment on the religious philosophy of the Mahabharata. There seem to be at least three layers to the religion of the epic. The first, and probably oldest layer of religious thought, centers on the Vedic sacrifice. It strikes me as a very primitive, magical sort of religious practice, in which a priest who is sufficiently trained in the magic spells, or mantras, lights a sacred fire, and with his chants can compel the gods to carry out his will. In the modern West, this would be considered a kind of black magic, because there is no ethical or moral check on what you can ask for, and the Brahmins seemingly pay no price for their actions. A good example of this would be Drupada's sacrifice to obtain a son who would destroy his enemies. This is not a matter of right or wrong, simply revenge. Drupad had enough money to pay for the spell, so the spell was cast. It is interesting to note that there is not a single mention of temple worship in the entire epic. The only places of religious significance were all natural, river crossings, sacred groves, and holy mountains. The second layer of religious thought has to do with Dharma. I think it was this line of thinking that made the epic revolutionary for its time. Called Karma Yoga in the Gita, it seems to be an innovation first brought up in this story. If there is any precursor to Karma Yoga, it would most likely be in the Upanishads, but I found no evidence of it. The philosophy can be found sprinkled throughout the epic, but never so clearly stated as in the Bhagavad Gita. To find happiness, and eventually heaven, you should carry out your duties in life without attachment. By this philosophy, a true renunciate does not need to renounce the worldly life. They should just renounce all attachments to the goals of a worldly life. Only the dead can renounce the world, and nonviolence is impossible as long as you are a living being. But we are alive, so we must act, and inevitably harm others. The Mahabharata provides a solution to this problem. The third element of religion we find in the epic is bhakti, or devotionalism to God. I do not think bhakti was originally built into the epic. Rather, I suspect it is inspired by the epic, and then later worked back into the story. This would explain the rise of Krishna from a peripheral character to a deity incarnate. Probably the setting of the Gita, where Krishna stands in as Arjun's guru on the eve of battle, so inspired later readers that they began to adopt Krishna as their own guru. As we see so often in modern India, guru inflation knows no limits. If my teacher is great, then his teacher must be greater, and as I rise in prominence, necessarily my gurus must rise even higher. Soon enough, Krishna is top god. Regardless of how it happened, 
This mixture of dharma and bhakti is a potent brew, and I find it the most appealing religious philosophy on the market today. Although I do not see bhakti as having been built into the epic from the start, and it certainly had a corrupting influence on the text, in the sense that we have lost the original pre-bhakti version, it is a useful addition to the story and may account for its survival to this day. The plot of the story and its religious advice about dharma is very cold and impersonal. It is sensitive enough to recognize that some of the characters are suffering, but little comfort is given. While Yudhishthira agonized over the tragedy he has engendered, the best anyone can say is that he should stick to his duties and his reward will be in heaven. It should not be surprising then that this advice doesn't work very well on him. He seems to be miserable from the start of the dice game all the way past his entrance to heaven. I think it is safe to say that the cold logic of Dharma is little comfort for people tormented with sorrow, guilt, or regret. Bhakti gives us a personal God whom we can call on just to help us with our puny day-to-day -day problems. It is a God who loves each one of us and cares that we are unhappy and will intervene in our lives. Maybe Yudhishthira would have had a happier life if he could have called on his personal savior to guide him and bring him comfort. Who knows? But it cannot be denied that billions of people have benefited from the religion of bhakti since then. Moreover, I'm quite sure that Sufism, Sikhism, and Christian mysticism were all inspired and influenced by the religion of love for Krishna that was developed in medieval India. I've had several listeners ask me to give my own opinions on some of the characters in the story. I'm afraid to say that most of my opinions are quite conventional. This springs from my insistence on sticking to what is said in the text itself. There's no point in trying to rehabilitate the Karavas. The author is unequivocal in his opinion of them, and I see no evidence to dispute that judgment. As for Karna, it has been fashionable lately to try to make a tragic hero out of him. But I would not go so far. I would say he was more of a tragic villain. In the Mahabharata, you do not need to be a nice guy in order to be a good guy. What I mean is that you can be a snob like Arjun, or a bully like Bhima, but as long as you stick to your dharma and play by the rules, you're a good guy. How you feel about things, or what is going on in your mind, doesn't seem to matter at all. It is quite possible that the Pandavas were not personally likable, but likability is just as not a necessary characteristic for a hero in this story. I think the best example of this is Balram, whom I found to be very unlikable, but that is inconsequential in the author's judgment, whether he was a good guy or bad. As for Karna, it is true that he was dealt a bad hand to start out with, being adopted and raised as a Sutta, but, by the rules of morality in the epic, his main sin was that he struggled against his dharma. While birth is obviously the principal factor in determining caste, one must also be brought up according to one's caste. That would explain why Pandu and Dhritarashtra were both sons of a Brahmin, but no one questioned their status of Kshatriyas. They had been raised in the palace and had observed all the rites of their caste. Thus, by the time Karna appeared on the scene to challenge Arjun at his tournament, he had already come of age according to the rites of a Sutta. He had Sutta parents, Sutta brothers, was probably already married to a Sutta wife, and may have had Sutta children. It was far too late at this stage for Karna to grasp for promotion to Kshatriyahood. From our modern standpoint, it is easy to sympathize with Karna's ambition, and we feel the sting of the Pandava's snobbery, but those are not the rules of the epic. By the logic of the Mahabharata, the only way one can find happiness is to accept one's dharma and not fight against it. This was Karna's biggest error. One mystery about Karna's story is his father's inability or reluctance to aid his son. Dharma and Indra were clearly proud of their respective sons, 
and they did not hesitate to intervene on their behalf. Thus, it is curious that Surya never made much of an effort to advance his own son's interests. Obviously, he did not have fate on his side, but the text never explains the sun god's impotence in furthering his son's career. Just as it has been fashionable to rehabilitate Karna's reputation, I've also noticed that a lot of people are too hard on Yudhishthira. The main charge against the eldest Pandava is that he was a gambling addict. I've already explained why I think this is a false charge. Again, to our modern sensibilities, he strikes us as a whining kiss-up. All his lamentations after the war can get annoying, and his extravagant piety is off-putting. But again, I try to judge these characters by the rules of the epic itself. And by those rules, what I see is a person who struggled endlessly to do the right thing. He seemed to have the heart of a Brahmin, so his instinctive reaction to challenges was always to take the path of renunciation. But when advised by his elders or Krishna to behave according to his position as king, he carried it out, however distasteful it might have been to see it through. I think Yudhishthira's biggest mistake was his impudence in holding the Rajasuya sacrifice. As we learned later, this rite could only be performed once in a dynasty. By granting himself that honor, he automatically precluded his cousins and uncles from having the same honor. It should have been obvious that this would incite his already jealous relatives. It seems to me that the Rajasuya was inappropriate so long as he remained obedient to another king. The fact that Durastra could summon him to the dice game and he could not refuse the invitation was a good sign that Yudhishthira was not his own man, and thus not qualified for the Rajasuya. By carrying out this imperial celebration in the face of their resentful relations, Yudhishthira was inviting retribution that he was helpless to avoid. I should say that he only held the Rajasuya on Krishna's advice, but obviously Krishna had ulterior motives, and the fallout of that ceremony fell on Yudhishthira's shoulders. It was the Pandavas who paid the price with 13 years of exile and the humiliation of their wife. It is to Yudhishthira's credit that he never once blamed Krishna for that colossal piece of bad advice. Meanwhile, poor Yudhishthira suffered constant recrimination from his wife and brothers. I have a hard time holding the events of the dice game against him because his behavior is simply inexplicable, as we discussed earlier, so it is hard to say how this reflects on his character. It is interesting to note how unhappy Yudhishthira seems for most of his life. From the dice game on, he seems to be perpetually unhappy. Perhaps this is further evidence that the story has been tinkered with, including the Bhagavad Gita. It seems to me that had he followed Krishna's advice as given in the Gita, he might have found an escape from his unhappiness. This may indicate that the original story was all about Dharma, and Bhakti came later. It seems that by the morality of the times, one's feelings or motivations counted for nothing, so long as you did what you were supposed to. Happiness was reserved for later in heaven. Life on earth is about obedience, and you kept your feelings to yourself. I think the next character who attracts the most admiration or criticism would be Draupadi. Many are critical of her for the way she needled her husbands to get revenge on her enemies, her great pride and the role she played in inciting Duryodhana at the palace in Indraprastha. Recall how she laughed at him when he stumbled through the illusory floors and windows. I'm inclined to be forgiving on all counts. After all, it is not easy being the wife of a Kshatriya man. Her honor was paramount, but she was incapable of doing anything herself to redeem that honor. Her only weapon was to persuade her husbands to act on her behalf. That must be a very frustrating position to be in. Furthermore, it must never be forgotten why she was born in the first place. Remember that her father, Drupada, spent what remained of his wealth on a Vedic sacrifice that would win him a son 
who would avenge him on the people who took away half his kingdom. What Drupada was expecting was a magnificent hero to emerge from the sacred flame, but instead he got a woman, Draupadi, followed by a so-so hero, Dristadyumna. As it turned out, the woman played a far more important role in Drupada's vengeance than the man. Thus, Draupadi was born for the purpose of constantly goading her husbands in the direction of war. After all, it is far easier to forgive and forget an injury to one's own honor, but when it comes to one's wife, who is incapable of defending herself, a man may find himself doing things he never would have done for his own sake. Without question, Draupadi's fate was to ensure her husbands never strayed from the path of bloody vengeance, and she played her role perfectly. Ultimately, all her brother had to do was keep himself alive until the moment came to kill the man who stole half of his father's kingdom, Drona. This is probably as good a time as any to talk about these fighting Brahmins, Drona, Kripa, and Ashvataman. Frankly, I don't like these guys. I find even Duryodhana to be more sympathetic than these guys. At least Duryodhana could be generous, and some of his tantrums are kind of funny. These Brahmins, on the other hand, are always out for number one. They are prickly about their honor, and they do not feel constrained by any of the rules of warfare that all self-respecting Kshatriyas live by. For example, there are only two instances in the story where a king is deposed and has his hereditary lands taken from him. It seems to have been the rules of the time that a warrior could depose or kill a neighboring king. He could loot his wealth, but never take his lands. The best he could do was place a descendant of the former king on the throne and make the new prince a tributary of his own kingdom. Thus, in all the Pandavas campaigns of conquest, including the massacre of India's kings at Kurukshetra, they were always fastidious in placing those kings' heirs on the empty thrones and leaving their patrimony intact. The one Kshatriya exception to this practice was old Jarasand of Magadha. He had conquered his neighboring princes, took their lands, and planned to kill them in a human sacrifice. This transgression was punished by the Pandavas at Krishna's advice. The only other example is that of Drona's revenge on his former classmate Drupada. The backstory is one of those opaque moments in the epic, where the whole incident is just barely explained. But it appears that when Drona and Drupad were young, before Drupad had inherited the throne, the pair of them trained under the same preceptor. They were friends and equals. But when Drupad inherited the throne, he no longer treated Drona with his former familiarity. Now they were king and subject. Feeling snubbed, Drona defected to the neighboring kingdom of Hastinapur. We might imagine that there was already some kind of cold war between the Kurus and Panchala, because the Kurus gladly took in Drupad's enemy and showered him with honors and sinecures. But this was far from enough for proud Drona. He needed to see his old friend put in his place. So, when the young Kuru princes came of age, he took as his payment their conquest of Panchala. When the defeated king was brought before his former classmate, Drona did what no self-respecting Kshatriya would do. He expropriated one half of Drupada's lands and set himself as the de facto king. This theft effectively made Drona the equal with King Drupad, and thus he had his revenge. So Jarasan paid for breaking the rules with his life, but no one even questioned the propriety of Drona's actions. It strikes me as unfair that these fighting Brahmins enjoy all the immunities of their caste, but they also can use force to take anything they want. Presumably the punishment for killing a Brahmin is so severe because Brahmins are peaceful and enlightened people. So if Drona is about to kill you and steal your property, and you kill him in self-defense, are you as guilty as if you killed a peace-loving ascetic in the woods? I've never felt comfortable with the free ride granted to all Brahmins, 
but it is understandable when you consider that their livelihoods were constricted to performing sacrifices and teaching others. So these fighting Brahmins are taking their liberties too far. Kripa took part in that low-down ambush on the sleeping Pandavayas, and he got away with it scot-free. Even the obscure character Kritavarman paid for his part in that night raid, but old Kripa went right back to work for the people whose sons he killed, and he apparently died in his own bed. Only Ashvataman finally took it so far that he brought down Vyasa's curse on his head. Apart from these Brahmins, I've tried to judge the other characters in terms of the rules of morality as laid down in the epic itself. But when it comes to these guys, I feel like I must rebel against the ethics of the epic. The author seems to just give them a free pass. The same goes for Parsharama Jamadagnya. That guy committed wholesale genocide on the Kshatriyas multiple times, but we never heard of one word of censor by anybody in the text. I find this astonishing. I'm tempted to posit an even more tenuous theory as to how this might have come about. I've read in several sources that it is thought that the epic was in the keeping of an elite group of Bhargava Brahmins for possibly hundreds of years. That helps to explain why the final teachings are loaded with advice to be generous to Brahmins and allow them to do anything they want. So, if these Bhargavas felt free to insert things, perhaps they also had as little compunction about removing things. I know it is bad enough that you could take any part of the text you don't like and say it was a later interpolation. But couldn't they just as well have removed any embarrassing editorials of the Brahmin characters in the story? Vyasa is generally quite fair to his characters. Yudhishthira gets criticized constantly during the exile, and he in turn goes after each brother and Draupadi on the way to heaven when they start dropping dead. But it is Drona and Kripa who are strangely spared this critical handling. Did Vyasa have a blind spot regarding his fellow Brahmins? Or did some later Bhargava editor quietly cut out anything harsh about their fellow castmates? I think the last character I'd like to comment on is the most enigmatic one, Krishna. As I said earlier, I find the fact that Krishna's biography is left out of the epic to be a strong indicator that his status was inflated radically sometime after the epic was composed. So I'm going to approach Krishna's character in the epic along these lines. That presumably in the original text, he was just a clever country cousin who proved to be a sage advisor to the Pandavas at a time when their closer relations and ministers were not available. I'm guessing that all the Krishna's Vishnu stuff was added later. There are also strange hints that something else was going on at the time that has since been buried. More on that later. So, what kind of person was this mortal Krishna like? It seems that he was a shrewd and loving friend to the Pandavas, but it also looks like he was manipulating them for his own ends. Here in the West, among evangelical Christians, Jesus is treated as a sort of invisible best friend. They talk of having a personal relationship with Jesus, and Jesus in return supports them and gives them what they ask for. I believe the Hindus invented this sort of religion, with the practice of bhakti. But on the other hand, I find the Jesus of the Gospels to be a more loving and sympathetic character than Krishna. Jesus was a healer and cared for the poor. Krishna is more of a playboy who sidles up to his wealthier cousins and manages to befriend the indomitable warrior Arjun. Krishna's early advice to the Pandavas all seemed like a good idea, but ended up having catastrophic consequences for the Pandavas. It was Krishna's advice that they build themselves an empire, and Krishna was especially interested in having them confront Jarasand of Magadha. We are told that this was all in a just cause, because after all, Jarasand was a tyrant who killed kings and took their land. But we are also told in other sources that Krishna's people had an ongoing feud with this guy, 
so he may have been using his cousins to settle an old score. I'm trying to find where I referred to it in the podcast, but there was an episode where Krishna rails against some false Vasudev who lived in the east near Magadha. It is all very cryptic, but could this be part of Krishna's motivation for sending his cousins out against Jarasand? Was there some rival that Krishna needed taking down a notch? Except for this one reference, the name Vasudev in the Mahabharata is meant to refer to Krishna as the son of a man named Vasudev. So why would it annoy Krishna so much that there was another guy out there who was the son of another man named Vasudev? A listener kindly sent me a copy of a book called Yuganta by Iravati Karva. This author is familiar with vastly more ancient Indian literature than I am, and she draws from Jaina tradition, which attributes a different meaning to the name Vasudev. According to Jain tradition, Vasudev is a title given to the greatest man of an age. If Krishna were aspiring to this title, it would certainly explain the beef he had with this other fellow who claimed the same honor as he. But regardless of Krishna's ulterior motives for encouraging his cousin's imperial ambitions, the result of their empire building was nothing short of catastrophic. At Krishna's urging, the brothers set off to conquer the world and outshine their cousins, but they never dealt with the issue that technically Dhritarashtra remained their elder and superior. They neglected the fact that this weaker power would inevitably get jealous and would use their superior familial position to take it all away. Performing the Rajasuya right before the eyes of their cousins was the final straw. They should have foreseen that Dhritarashtra would not take it well and that he and his sons would plot against them. But they listened to Krishna's advice and got themselves into a world of hurt as a result. While this error on Krishna's part is never commented on in the epic, I think the implicit explanation is that Krishna meant to do it. He must have deliberately incited the Karva's jealousy in order to bring about the cosmic battle at Kurukshetra. But if I were the Pandavas sitting in exile in the jungles of North India, swatting mosquitoes, I think I'd be a bit annoyed at having taken Krishna's advice. Perhaps, like gamblers who staked everything on their cousin's advice, they decided at that point to double down and risk everything on Krishna's continued assistance. I can only conclude that if someone wanted to recruit me into the religion of Krishna worship, and the only literature they gave me was the Mahabharata, I would hardly be convinced to sign up. The one moving exception, of course, is the Bhagavad Gita. I suspect that it was this one piece of wisdom, given at the most spectacular point in the narrative, that made Krishna's reputation. By that teaching alone, he deserves the honor of the title Vasudev, or the greatest man of his age. This is getting to be quite a long episode, so I'll wrap up with a talk on the epic's place in religious literature, starting with its place in Indian literature. I think only the Vedas and Upanishads can make any claim to being more significant. As far as I can tell, it introduced the religious concept of Dharma, as described in the Gita, called Karma Yoga. Plus, it inspired an immense body of literature called the Puranas. I confess that I have only read a fraction of the total Puranic literature, but I think I've read enough to have a general feel for it. My guess is that the Mahabharata came first, and was so compelling that people wanted more of the same. The first Puranas were probably just supplements to the epic, like the Harivamsa, but they developed from there into a mystical sourcebook for backstories of the gods and sages. In terms of quality, however, none of them compare to the Mahabharata. It kind of reminds me of how Tolkien's Lord of the Rings inspired the whole category of fantasy fiction, but none of them hold a candle to the original books that got them all started. 
In comparison with ancient literature in the rest of the world, I also feel the Mahabharata is unrivaled in terms of its storyline, its humanity, and especially the quality of its religious philosophy. The overall philosophy of the Old Testament Bible is childish or even primitive in comparison. While the epic also has its temperamental gods and legalistic rituals, there is a layer of religious philosophy that is as advanced as any on the religious market today. I'm sure that some might disagree with me on this, but I find the story and the characters of the Mahabharata to be more interesting than anything written by Homer. And the Ramayana is like a bedtime story in comparison. In terms of religious philosophy, I've studied all of the world's major religions as both an academic and a religious seeker. And I find the philosophy of Vedanta to be both most comprehensive and most satisfying spiritually. Among the many subjects I've studied has been the voluminous first-person accounts of near-death experiences. These are first-hand accounts by people around the world who have experienced what it is like to die and have been resuscitated to tell us about it. If there is anyone listening to this who questions the veracity of these accounts, you have simply not read enough of them, and I suggest you hit the books and then come back to this. It is true that many of these experiences are clouded by the religious prejudices of the individual experiencer. But if you read enough of these accounts, you can quickly learn how to discriminate. Also, we are fortunate in this skeptical age that a large portion of near-death experiencers had gone into it having never even thought about what the afterlife might be like, and had never subscribed to any particular religion. The atheists and materialists are always in for the biggest surprise. Using these accounts, we can begin to form our own opinion of what life is really all about, and the nature of the soul, and what to expect after you die. Having read a tremendous number of NDE accounts, and the literature surrounding it, I've been able to form a good idea of what the answers to the biggest questions might be. And, having already been familiar with the religions of India, I was able to conclude that, among the world's religions, the cosmology and religious philosophy of Vedanta is the closest match to what we learn from near-death experiences. For instance, reincarnation is a real phenomenon, and the individual soul is an undivided portion of God herself. The soul is eternal and eternally conscious, and consciousness itself underlies all of creation. In case you are wondering, our purpose in life is to learn to be less selfish and more loving. We can spend as many lifetimes as it takes to learn this. Karma seems like punishment, but it is just the law of cause and effect played out over many lifetimes. In addition, life is not confined to just this earth. There are an infinity of other worlds in which we can come and play however many lifetimes as we desire. Of the world's religions, only Vedanta and Buddhism are really comfortable with these concepts, and I find the literature of Vedanta to be more clear about these realities. I should point out that Vedanta also seems to be the oldest of the living religious traditions in the world. It seems that the Kali Yuga has had a strongly negative impact on the religions that developed at later dates. It is possible that some deeper wisdom did once exist in China and the West, but those civilizations suffered so much devastation during the course of the Iron Age that if any such philosophical literature existed, it was destroyed by the first emperor of China or the repeated destructions of Jerusalem and Babylon, the burning of Alexandria's library, the Greco-Roman enslavement of Egypt, and the subsequent Christian and Islamic purges of all heretical writings. It's little wonder why the sages of India instituted rote memorization as the only sure way of saving their wisdom from the flames of religious fanatics and conquering barbarians. And so, we have the people of India to thank for having preserved the true wisdom of the ancients. It makes me sad to think of how much has been lost, but at least we have the Mahabharata, 
which is a vast treasure trove of clues as to how people of the Bronze Age really saw the world. Well, I think that's about enough said on the subject of the Mahabharata. I'd like to thank my wife Dorothy and my two brilliant daughters for allowing me the time to fulfill this hobby of mine. I would also like to thank Professor Brian Black of Lancaster University for his advice on sources and for tolerating my amateurish speculations. And thank you for sticking with me through all 100 episodes. I have particularly valued all your kind comments, questions, and suggestions. I have learned a lot in the process. This is Lawrence Manzo, signing off. Thanks for listening.